We're going to be mostly in John chapter 14 this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up there. If you don't, um, if you don't have one, you don't have one on your phone or any kind of access to one, um, we, we have them at the front of each section at the back. You're always welcome to grab one uh, during this time or after the service, whenever you would like. If you don't own a readable Bible, please take one of those with you as our gift to you. We would, um, we would, love, uh, we would love that if you would take that. Uh, so we're going to be in John chapter 14. Father, help us as we look at your word. Help us to not only understand what it is you are saying, but who it is you are pointing to. Lord Jesus, let us not miss you. Let us see you. Let us know you. Let us experience you and all and through you all that you are offering to us. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. So years ago, it was widely thought and widely held that as technology advanced and as science and, uh, advanced and our understanding of how the world works, as all of that advanced, the thought was eventually that human, humans would evolve to a point where they would no longer need religion. They would no longer need, because we would get to a place where we understood how the world works and we would not need what was seen as as myths or stories to try to bring meaning to things that we didn't understand. But what is interesting and what has actually happened is the opposite. That it seems that the more we learn, the more we um, understand about how the world works, the more mystery we find. And not only that, but the more that we find that that points to a creator. And so despite all the predictions to the contrary, today the vast majority of people in the world are far from being atheist. Most people in the world believe that there is a higher power, and not just marginally most, like vast, vast majority of people believe there is something else, something beyond us, a higher power. Most believe there is something outside of this life. The question is who and what? We often in our culture, even here, talk of God as a a general idea, a being, a power, fate, the universe, something that we know is there, but we can't really know. But here, Jesus is going to get very specific. The setting here is, this is what is referred to by scholars as the upper room discourse. So very fitting after we took communion that this is um, the time that this is going on, that Jesus is in, in the upper room celebrating the Passover with his disciples the night before his death. And this is what he teaches them. And he gives them a message of comfort. And what's interesting, what we'll notice in this, is that he's comforting them in a way that many of us and many in the world comfort one another in times of loss. Look what he says in verses 1 through 3. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, 
that where I am, you may be also. These are comforting words, to be sure. Jesus is telling them that that now in the, in the coming days, there would, they would grieve. There would be pain. There would be loss. There would be troubled. But he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he tells them about heaven. He tells them about a, a better place, about his father's house. And that's very cultural for us, right? In these times, we often talk about a better place. We comfort one another with words that when, we've, when we lose someone, that he or she is in a better place. We, we have pictures of what that might be. Secular um, films like non-Christian movies and media and everything have some picture of this idea there's, there's a better place. And that's what the, the, the um, atheist world or the world that, that doesn't believe in something else looks at and says, well, that's just a, a myth to make you feel better. And it's hard to argue with that when often we talk about it in such generic, nonspecific terms. Because overall, most people in our culture, though most people believe that there is something there, most people aren't really sure what that there is. And it's more of a hope than an assuredness. And also during that time, we, we talk of praying for others. But often in our culture, that's synonymous with just kind of a generic sending of, of good thoughts. And it's understandable. What, what else can we do when we care for somebody and we want them to know that we're thinking of them? That is actually a really kind comfort to give to someone. But what Jesus is doing here is not a generic comfort statement. This is no unspecific encouragement. There's nothing ethereal or philosophical about what he is saying. He is making a concrete statement about a real father and a real place. And he says, you know the way to where I am going. I think if I had been there, I would have thought, as he said, talked about my father's house and many rooms and all this and thought like, oh, that's, that's, that's nice. That's nice to think that that might be what's there. But then he says, he turns it very, very specific and he says, you know the way. And that takes it from something generic to something specific, from something abstract to something concrete. Telling them about this amazing place, but then saying, and you know the way, you know where I'm going. And Thomas responds, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Almost like he's saying, wait, this is, this is real? You're talking about a real place here? It's not just some kind of parable or some kind of thing that you're trying to encourage us with when, when we're going through hard times? Like, you're talking about a real place? Like, we're supposed to know where you're going? Jesus, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And just like the rest of the I am statements, Jesus is taking their eyes off of a what and putting it on a who. 
And he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus addresses the generic statements of their day and of ours. Hopeful thoughts and prayers to an unknown higher power. Hopes of a better place. He takes that and makes it concrete. And he says he is the way to the Father. He is the truth about the Father. He is the life that is offered by the Father. I had Robbie guest lecture one time um, in one of my classes on missions. And whenever I have Robbie guest lecture for me, I always do it at the end of the week so then I don't have to go after him again and have people ask, like, where's Robbie? And so, um, just like what always happened here. That's why he's gone. Um, <laughs> could not. It's too far. Too far, Jay. Um, but it turns, uh, he, one of the things he would talk about in missions is like he's trying to get at the root of what is unique about Christianity. Because when you go into other cultures and you are sharing the gospel, like one of the things you have to address is, well, what's different about Christianity from other religions? And often we tend to think that it's the uniqueness of our doctrine. The things we believe, like substitutionary atonement, forgiveness of sins, and the the love of God, and being with him forever. But what he does is, uh, Robbie goes through systematically and shows where those teachings are also found in pretty much every other religion. Every other religion has a version of those doctrines that we think are so specific and so unique. So what is unique about Christianity? Jesus. Jesus is unique. It all rests on him. Most other religions talk about an eternal life or life after death. Most talk about forgiveness, but only one talks about the God, the God, one triune God who becomes flesh. Only one has Jesus. The one who didn't just come to preach the word, the one who is the word of God, the one who didn't just come to offer life, the one who is life, the one who did not just come to show us the way of righteousness, who is the way of righteousness. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to the Father. How do we know the way? When Thomas says, how do we know? We don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. How do we get to this house, Jesus? Me. The answer is always Jesus. To cling to him. Not to get the instructions on how to get there from him. This is critical. The way to heaven, the way to the Father is Jesus. And this is not simply that Jesus is like a gatekeeper who's going to give us the quiz and make sure we can pass it. It's that he is the way. We go through him. He is the way. He is the way. He is the only way. I remember several weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus as the door, we explored the exclusivity of Christ. That how Jesus was saying, he doesn't leave the option open that there are a bunch of different ways. 
And we said that the main objection to passages like these I am statements is how exclusive it is and how often when sharing this with people that I've had people say to me, so, so you're saying that Jesus is the only way. And I always try to respond with, no, Jesus is saying he's the only way. It doesn't matter what I'm saying. And who am I? But what Jesus is saying matters infinitely. He's saying he is the only way. So yes, Christianity, as manifested by Jesus, is exclusive in that there is only one way. But remember, we also talked about how inclusive it is in that anyone can come to him. That it doesn't matter how you were raised or how educated you were or how, how much money you have or what your parents believed or where you were born. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is are you clinging to Jesus? Who do you say that he is? You don't earn your way or prove your way. You just turn and lay down your kingdom and follow him. Which is why it's, it's strange when people act as though it's a judgmental thing to say that Jesus is the only way. I mean, think about it. Assuming that is true, how cruel would it be for Jesus to make that unclear? Like, how cruel would it be if, if this is true, that Jesus is the way, and no one comes to the Father but through him? How cruel would it be of Jesus to say, you know, who am I? There's probably other ways. I, I, love, um, I love looking for different options and trying to find the best route or route to a place. So I'll use Google Maps any, I, I need to see who my people are in here. So in any, when I'm on a road trip, I have three different maps applications on my phone open at any given time. Anybody else? Seriously? Come on. Okay. Like, when, <laughs> Thank you. A couple sheepish people being like, I wouldn't admit that in public. That was a little... Um, okay. So I'll have all these different map app applications open because I want to know what's the best way. And often when I'm going through Chicago, there's like a million different ways through Chicago. Like you can go these toll roads, you can kind of take 41 off here and then get, then get on the toll road on south of Chicago. Like you can do all these things. And it's constantly changing of like, oh, it's 27 minutes. Oh, it's 34 minutes. Oh, it's seven hours. Like whatever the case is. And, and so it shows me these different ways. And some of you are thinking, I got a good way. Don't go. Like just don't go to Chicago. That's the best way. And, um, and I get that. I understand that. And so, like, I always want to know, and I always want to know, well, what are the alternate routes? And there are a lot of them to Chicago, but I also do that when I go to Green Bay. Yeah, right? Like, I'm just addicted. I'm like, well, what other ways are there? And so, like, I'll ask, and a lot of times my maps application will pu push back, like, I mean, go down 41. Yeah, but what if I can't go down 41? No, you really can. There's nobody on 41. You can go on 41. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, but what if I can't? And I, I was pushing one time. I hit like the, the roots and then I was like, view other roots. There are none. View other roots. There are none. View other roots. And finally my phone was like, fine, you could go on B out to Coleman and then go to Shano and then go around and take a tour around Iowa and then come back up and you'll arrive in like 18 hours. There you go. There's your other way. And I, and I look at that and I think like, man, that's how so many of us think about Christianity. That for, some, for many people in the world, they think about heaven like Chicago, which is weird I, as I say it out loud. But like, they, they think about it as like, you know what? These are all like good routes. It just depends on where you're from. It depends on what, you, what your upbringing is. It just depends on all these different things. And sometimes this is better. This is more efficient. 
But then we get into more of a cultural Christianity way where it's more like getting to Green Bay. And you say like, well, I mean, I know the clear way. Like, it's really simple and straightforward. Just go down 41 and you're going to get to Green Bay. And then, but when people really push and they really press and you say like, well, you know, who am I to say that there aren't other ways? Like, it might, there might be some other roundabout way that you could possibly get there. But like, listen, I don't, I don't recommend it. But Jesus doesn't leave those options open. He says, I am the way. And in case they miss it, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. There are no other options. There are no other ways. And that's not because we believe that to be the case. It's because we believe him that he says that's the case. And so I would encourage you that when, when you get pushed back on like that about the exclusivity, exclusivity of Christ, don't take that on your own shoulders. Put it on him. And do so gently and humbly and say, you're right, who am I? Who am I to answer that question? Who am I to say who would get to go to heaven and who wouldn't go to heaven? I'm nobody. I am one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, and that's it. And and where I found the bread of life, he says he is the only way. And I believe him. But even when we get there, when we say he's the way, it's so much more than just the ticket into heaven, into our Father's house. And so often we live, we get to that place and we are together and we say, yes, Jesus is the only way. And once I get my ticket punched, then it's up to me to do what the Bible tells me to do and live a good life. But he isn't just the ticket to heaven. He's not just the door. He is the way. Often when I ask people, like, how do you think God wants you to live? What do you think pleases God? And most people will answer with things like, well, he probably wants me to go to church, be good to pray, to read the Bible. But how often do we answer that question with, cling to Jesus. What he wants is for me to just hold on to Jesus. Your early Christians were referred to as followers of the way. And what was the way? It wasn't just an intellectual agreement that Jesus is who he says he is and he died and rose again and so because of that I get to go to heaven. That wasn't what they um, talked about as the way. It was all-encompassing. It meant a radical obedience to Jesus, a living out of what he taught and what he lived. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the way. Cling to me. Follow me. It's not just about praying a prayer of repentance and accepting him into your heart. It's about following him. He is the way. Reading scriptures and looking to him as a fulfillment of the way is absolutely critical that he is the focus of our lives. Otherwise, we will fall into the trap of using Jesus as the beginning, like as the gate and saying, okay, Jesus, thanks for like, taking my ticket. And now I'm going to go and I'm going to create my own way. And then it becomes, it maybe starts with Jesus as for my forgiveness, but then it becomes a matter of our works and our beliefs and our understandings. And Paul addresses this to the Galatians. He says, are you so foolish? 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Jesus is the way, not just the beginning of the way. He is the way. And whenever we get off track and whenever we start to look at the Bible as just these principles and these ideas and we start to define Christianity by certain beliefs and we forget that all of those are only valuable and only true insofar as they are attached to Jesus, we get off course. He is the way. He shows us how to be human. He shows us what we were meant for. When we preached through the Sermon on the Mount, we showed this is Jesus saying, this is the way, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Watching him as you read the Gospels, how does he interact with people? How does he speak to people? What is his demeanor with people? Jeff is so good to use the word apprentice when it comes to discipleship. And it's so critical here that discipleship is not just learning information. It is apprenticing and learning how to live the life that Jesus gave us to live. Right? It's not just learning information any more than a plumber who apprentices under another plumber that their only job is to just learn how pipes work. They have to practice it. They have to follow. They have to watch. They have to then do. So if he is the way, follow him. Not just as your ticket to heaven, but as a way in life everlasting, day in and day out. And remember, he is with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus is the way, and he is the truth. What does he mean by saying he is the truth? This is critical because just like with discipleship being more than knowledge, truth is more than just knowledge and facts and information. There is a third dimension to it. Truth is 3D. It is three-dimensional. What do I mean by that? Well, what often happens when we think of truth as a concept is we look at it like it's two-dimensional. We even use two-dimensional phrases to describe it, like black and white. We talk about right and wrong. And we describe these things that are, that are clear. And we do that because we tend to, tend to think in terms of two dimensions. Because we can handle that. We can handle black and white. We can handle two dimensions. And especially in the church. Anytime that we don't, that we go outside of black and white, we use derogatory terms to describe those processes like gray areas and compromising and wishy-washy. I don't know how many of you actually say wishy-washy. It's just fun to say. So. But is that how Jesus talks about truth? Like I know, just hang with me. But look at Luke 6. One of the favorite things to try to get Jesus on is the Sabbath. Luke 6 says, And on another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath because it wasn't lawful to do work like that on the Sabbath. So they wanted to watch and see, what's he going to do? So they watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, 
to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said, after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. See, for the Pharisees, following the Sabbath was black and white. And here was Jesus bringing a third dimension to what it meant to follow him. And they didn't like it. They didn't like it because they could control and master and manipulate two dimensions. They could get somebody on the law in two dimensions. They could show, they could make a case for why you were breaking the law. And they were very into specifics. There was no nuance in what the Pharisees did. If you want to know, is it lawful for me to do a dish on the Sabbath? Like, no, you can't do a dish. Well, you can bring a dish over to the counter, but you can't wash it. You can walk five steps over here, but not, not six. And they would break it down like that because everything was black and white. Because everything had to be black and white. Because that was the only way they could master it. It was the only way they could control it. And now Jesus is coming and saying, you can't control that. Truth is not your version of two dimensions. They tried to trap him and twist and manipulate it for their purposes. But notice Jesus doesn't even ask what the law says. He doesn't doesn't get into a battle of like trading scriptures with them. He simply says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? And he's asking them, what's the, what's the spirit of why did God give you the Sabbath? What do you think would be pleasing to God in this moment? See, the reality is there's always a third dimension to what we see as black and white and facts. We know this because anytime we look at, I mean, just, just think about, oh, I don't know, the Second Amendment. How clear is that? It's actually not even that many words. And yet you can have two people read it, and have completely different understandings. Now, we could look at that simply and just say, well, yeah, that's because they're wrong and I'm right. But hopefully, we would at least be able to take a step back and say, okay, well, I'm not saying that I'm God and the holder of all truth. And so there are different ways of reading the very same thing. And the same thing happens with the Bible and with God's revealed word. But in Jesus, we have the truth. We have what he says and what he does, which shows us what he meant by what he said. We don't have to guess all the time. We can see him and abide in him. And I'm just telling you that this is coming under fire a lot. This is something that the church has understood for years and years and years. It is only in our modern culture that believes that our intellect is the only thing unstained by sin that believes that we can understand completely and fully everything that God has revealed and then we can go take it and we become his hall monitors. And anytime somebody says, well, I think there's a third dimension to this. There's the life of Jesus. They're cast out. If you don't believe me, I'm running a risk even bringing this up, but I'm, I'm okay with it. Recently, Alistair Begg, who is a well-known pastor, author, and speaker, came under fire for comments that he made as he was counseling a specific person in a specific situation. And what it was doesn't really matter. 
Because the real heart of the matter was this. He was speaking of truth as three-dimensional. It's not less than two dimensions, but it's more. And people who want it to be two-dimensional became angry. Because we don't like it when we bring Jesus into the conversation and say, yeah, but he is the truth. What does it look like to follow him in this? And I couldn't help but, as I was reading that story about Alistair Begg, I couldn't help but hear the words of Paul as Paul dealt with the debates around meat sacrificed to idols. And I know this keeps coming up, but it's so relevant to today that in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses the big issue of the day. Remember, there's scarcely a bigger debate and the church going on rather than whether it was lawful to eat meat sacrificed to idols or not. Could we do it? Or were we stained by those idols? Were we worshiping a false god? Or like, should, should we abstain from it? Or are we actually showing how much faith we have by eating the meat? Like some said, hey, it's more faith to eat the meat because we know that those gods aren't real. And other people said, no, by eating the meat, you look like you're worshiping those other gods. And so you can't do it. And so they finally get to turn to Paul and they say, well, Paul, which one is it? And finally, the heavyweight apostle Paul goes and weighs in to settle the matter. And this is what he says. Now concerning food offered to idols. All right, we're going to find out who's right. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something He does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. I just want you to imagine for a second, take any hot button issue right now that people are clamoring for for people in the church to speak to. Imagine if Paul answered like this, what the reaction would be. They're asking him, is it black or is it white? And he starts talking about love? What in the world, Paul? Like, can you imagine like, how wishy-washy, Paul? He says, then, whatever you think you know, you don't actually know. That would go over super well right now, I think, in our culture. What's he saying? Your knowledge is two-dimensional. What's missing? Well, he tells us, the love of God. And he goes on, the answer, ultimately, is to do what is loving in that situation. He says, you're right. Like, look, those idols are nothing. They're, they're made up. So by eating it, you're not, nothing's happening to you by eating that meat. That actually is, it's totally an act of faith. If your conscience is clear in that, eat the meat, because nothing happens to you. But if your conscience is convicted of that, and you think by eating that meat, you're worshiping another God, then you definitely shouldn't eat the meat. And by the way, if you're in a group of people, you should do whatever is most loving and encouraging to your brothers and sisters around you. Church, this is critical. Looking to Jesus as the fulfillment of the truth is not wishy-washy. It is biblical. And we have to be able to wrestle with that. 
Jesus never acts in a way that is counter to what God has revealed in his word. He fulfills all of it. And those things are so fiercely connected throughout the New Testament. This idea of truth and love. We often talk about truth and love as though they are opposites or two different things that need to balance each other out. Like, yeah, we need to speak the truth, but we need to make sure that we're loving when we do it. Yes, we need to love people, but we need to make sure that we have some truth in there too, as if they're like two ingredients. But they are not. They're the same because they are Jesus. Like, I know that's a little, like, abstract to, like, try to think about, but the reality is God isn't just loving, right? Scripture says God is love. Jesus isn't just truthful. He is the truth. So he is never one or the other. He never balances out. He is love. He is the truth. So truth is only truth if it is loving. And love is only love if it is in truth. So in reality, if truth is not loving, then it ceases to be from God and therefore ceases to be truth. I'm really glad we record this so you can go back and replay it and go. (laughs) But if love is not in truth, in reality, rooted in who God has revealed himself to be, then it's not actually love. It's something else because it's not of God. So church, listen, not everyone who quotes scripture is speaking truth. Satan quotes scripture. Not everyone who believes truth about God belongs to God because even the demons believe and shudder. Not everyone who makes a good argument, including me, is correct. The Pharisees won every argument they ever got into except with Jesus. And not everyone who says they are being loving is loving in truth. This is why we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. This is why we have to be immersed in who he is. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. I really encourage you, as you read the Bible, I'm so thankful for all of the scriptures. They all point to Jesus. And so I would encourage you, as you read other books of the Bible, read the Gospels. Every time you read another book in the Bible, read one of the Gospels. Be immersed in them. So the very nature and the demeanor of Christ soaks into you so that you just get to a place where you're abiding in him and learning and you just know his voice and you know how he speaks and you know exactly what he would say. And you know how he would respond. Everything in scripture is meant to be read through the lens of Jesus. He is the truth. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Does that sound like we finite human beings can take that and boil it down to black and white that we can master and control? No. And yet in his kindness... He reveals himself truly to us. So here's the incredible mystery of this. What we find in these pages is true. It is completely trustworthy. We, we, use, that, we use the term of inerrancy, infallibility. What we mean is everything in here is what God intended to reveal about himself. 
But we don't read it to just learn the truth about God. We learn it, we read it so that we would know the truth, the living word of God. That's the point. That's why the Bible was written. John says that. He said he did many, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We read the Bible, which is true, so that we would know Jesus, the truth. And just for fun, one, one more, just to... Because I feel like, I knew I needed to take longer with this, and so I appreciate your patience in this, because I knew I could feel people tighten up. And I get it, I understand it, but we're going to pursue him. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What do you think he means by truth in that? Do you think he means you will know the facts of how the world works and those facts will set you free? Or does he mean you will know the truth and he will set you free? So let's not settle for worldly definitions of truth. What God has is so much deeper and more profound. Let's hear what God says and watch how Jesus lives. He is the truth and he is the life Don't worry, I'm going to wrap up quickly with this one because this is what we've already been talking about. We take on his life. He lives this life with us and his life is abundant. He is everything you want and more. Lauren was reading in Luke 5 this week and she shared with me some of her insights and it just really struck me in light of this. So that's all I'm going to use. In Luke 5... There's a story of Jesus calling the first disciples, one of whom is Simon Peter. And Jesus gets in the boat after they've they've been fishing all night. They've had an all night fishing excursion and gotten nothing. And Jesus in the morning gets in their boat and tells them to put out a little farther from shore and then he tells them to drop their nets. And their response was, well, Jesus, we've been fishing all night. And we've caught nothing. But they said, at your word, we will let down the nets. And the story goes that they haul in so many fish. Nets full. They haul in so many fish. The Bible says that the boats began to sink. Literally under the weight of all the fish that they are bringing in. The boats are just cracking and starting to sink. That's how much fish they bring in. Now think about this. When they set out to go fishing, what were they hoping for? They were hoping to catch fish. If they could imagine how much fish, how many fish they were going to actually bring in, do you think they could possibly imagine? Like if you said, they said, oh, we hope to bring in a good haul. Okay, well, think bigger. Well, we hope to bring in a really big haul. Think bigger. Oh, man, like we bring in all the fish of the sea. That's as big as they could think. And Jesus delivers everything they could have imagined for that day, everything they could have possibly wanted for that day, and more. And what does he say to them? 
He says, I have something far greater. I'll make you fishers of men. And what do they do when they get to shore? When they had brought their boats to land with everything they could have possibly wanted and imagined, they left it all and followed him. This is wild. What do you want right now? If you could just wave a hand, if you could ask Jesus for anything right now, what would you want? And then imagine if you even brainstormed and thought, okay, we'll go next level, next level, next level. What this story shows us is that Jesus can give you all of those things, more than you could possibly even imagine. What do you want, to be healed of a disease? What if he said, I'm not only, not only going to heal you, but I'm going to make you feel like you felt when you were 20? Which I realize for some of you, that's still older than where you are right now. So that's about your peak, guys. After that, it's just downhill. So enjoy the last couple of years. So encouraging today. Um, just, but like, Everything you could ever want. Like he says, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do more, and I'm going to do more, and I'm going to do more. And then he tells you something, but I have something better. And those who hear him look at all the things they could have ever wanted in their life, and they say, I'm going with him. That's the call of following him and what it means that he is the life. Remember when the crowds chased him after they, the thousands had been fed? They go to Jesus and they want more bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And most of them said, well, then forget it. But there were the disciples who said, I want the giver of that bread. I don't know what he means by fishers of men, but I want that. I don't know what he means by bread of life, but I want that. The woman at the well wants a drink of water and Jesus offers living water. People search for temporary treasures, but Jesus offers treasure that will never fade. This is the life of Christ. If you don't have that, if you look at it and you say, I don't know, like, no, like what I want in this world, that's really what I want, and I'm going to use religion to try to get that, then that is not what Jesus is talking about, him being the way, the truth, and the life. Whatever it is you want, Jesus offers far more. And things that we can't even fathom what he means by it that's what he's doing when he talks to them in in john 14 he's talking to them about a big house with many rooms i can't understand what that means we cannot even imagine and we still can't that's why paul says as it is written what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what god has prepared for those who love him And all of that is found not in a what, but a who. The way to the Father is not a what of praying a certain prayer or getting certain facts in order. It's a who. It is Jesus. The truth of the Father is not a what about certain facts that we can read and and master and pass a test. It is a truth. It is a who manifested in Jesus And the life that is offered is not a what, talking about the specifics of what treasures in heaven are like or anything like that. It's a who that offers it. We are seeing Jesus being really active in this area right now. He is doing incredible things. 
And church, I just want to exhort us to continue to cling to the who that is offering all of these things. Our culture desperately needs to know the way. They desperately are looking for the way to life everlasting. And it is not going to be found by putting Ten Commandments up in our schools. It's going to be found by people, teachers and students and people in the community and neighbors clinging to Jesus day by day by day and saying to others who are looking for the way, I know the way. It's Jesus. He is the way. In an era where truth is a moving target and it's whatever anybody wants to say that it is, our culture is desperate for a truth that is reality, but not a simplified two-dimensional truth that we use to like hold over people's heads because that's not the truth at all. Jesus is the truth. He is unwavering and unchanging. He is the one who is steady no matter what the culture throws at him. He never wavers. He is the truth, and people are searching for life, for meaning, for contentment, for peace, for joy, for hope. And we know that Jesus is the life. We know the way, the truth, and the life. So maybe that's your first time really considering it. And I just encourage you, turn from all that. The Christian life is not about doing certain things for God. It is about surrendering yourself to Jesus Christ. Turn from your rebellion in your own kingdom and come to him. Or if you have been following Jesus, maybe this is a time where we need to repent of trying to make things two-dimensional, trying to make it about these certain facts that we can master rather than seeing, okay, Jesus, show me what you mean by this. Show me what it looks like to speak truth into this situation. Show me what it looks like to love my neighbor. Show me. Or maybe you've been seeking life in other ways rather than him that we have been talking about. But here's the beauty. What the world sees as a generic hope, knowing God or a higher power or being with him, Jesus has made concrete. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So cling to him, follow him, and receive all that he has for you. Let's pray. Father, we know, like even as we've wrestled with these things, God, like help us to understand more fully that, Lord, what does it mean that you are the way, the truth, in the life. Forgive us, God, for trying to take these incredible truths and whittling them down to a law that we can manipulate and control and master and judge with. And Lord, let us place our trust fully in you. God, thank you for your revealed word. Thank you, God, that we don't, have to, we don't have to then make up whatever we want about you. We don't have to just try to come up with who we think you might be. You tell us. You show us. So, Lord, forgive us how we devalue the scriptures. Forgive us for making them a legal textbook or making 
than just knowledge. Lord, let us find you in them. Let us read your word to hear your voice, to know you that we might abide in you. And that we might be able to point others to you as we pursue you in all things. In the power of the Holy Spirit, under the mighty name of Jesus, amen.